close your eyes. Well, not if you're driving. That would be bad. Just run with me on this one. Imagine that you have just woken up with one of your hands cuffed to a post right next to a train track. As the train speeds past you, you become shocked to realize that you are not the only one who is trapped. You see that there are ten people who have been tied to the track along the train's path. You notice that the train isn't slowing down. In fact, it might not be able to. Within your reach is a lever. You know that if you leave the lever alone, the train is sure to head down the track with the ten tied-up people. However, if you pull the lever, the train will be led down a different track, away from the ten people. Just as you're about to pull the lever to save those people, you notice that in the distance, another person has been tied to the second track. Even worse, you hear that person scream, and you realize that it's your friend. Whom do you save? Your friend? Are those ten strangers? Welcome to the Secret Menu Project podcast. Thanks for staying with us even after we put you through that hypothetical yet stressful situation. Some of you may have already heard of this trolley problem scenario. While it is a bit extreme, it is a prime example of a moral dilemma. In this podcast, we will be exploring the topic of morality. So, if you have been living your entire life on the edge of your seat, itching to learn more about right versus wrong, or how in the world it has anything to do with elections, then stick around, and hopefully, this will be illuminating. So, let's begin by defining morality. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, morality is the conformity of the ideals of right human conduct. Sounds a bit too fancy to talk about something as simple as right and wrong, so we'll break it down for you. First, notice the definition mentions the idea of conformity, almost suggesting that morality is a result of socialization. Let's see what other people have to say. We interviewed a couple people about their ideas, Katie and Gavin. Here's what Katie has to say. And here are Gavin's ideas. It seems that Katie and Gavin agree with the conformity aspect. Katie mentioned how society judges people based on their morals, while Gavin highlights that morals are learned. We also did a survey about this. One of our questions asked about whether or not we must be taught the difference between right and wrong. The results show that out of 69 responders, 94.2% believe that we must be taught this difference. Now you might be thinking, alright, calm down. These are just random people's opinions. And we agree. So we did our own research. According to developmental psychologist Jean Piaget, when children begin spending more time cooperating with their peers, they gradually come to respect rules out of respect for each other. They experience the benefits of fairness and reciprocity, and they developed more sophisticated notions of justice. Similarly, Jonathan Haidt mentioned in his 2008 article that moral systems are interlocking sets of values, practices, institutions, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate selfishness and make social life possible. So Piaget and Haidt and Katie and Gavin and 94.2% of 69 people seem to agree with the idea that morality is a result of socialization, and maintained by conforming to society's rules. 
It would be appropriate to conclude, then, that the difference between right and wrong, or as Merriam-Webster defines it, the ideals of right human conduct, are also defined by societal norms. In fact, according to Prince, who authored a chapter in Moral Psychology, The Evolution of Morality, culture can determine the specific content of rules. What counts as an impermissible harm in one culture may be morally compulsory in another. Sounds pretty crazy, right? Long story short, morality and its effects on our behaviors are meant to maintain the social nature of humankind. Elmers and Van den Bos summarized it quite well in their 2012 article about morality in groups. They said, because morality helps us define who we are and how we think we should behave, it also has important implications for the way we relate to other groups. An essential feature of judgments of right and wrong is that they inform social judgments of self and others and touch upon the interface between the individual and the group. Alright, now you're probably wondering why we mentioned elections a few minutes ago in our introduction. You might even be thinking, ugh, here we go again with the politics. I can't stand that political party. Yes, we can feel your eyes rolling from here but we hope that you will keep your eyeballs in their appropriate places just because we're not here to frustrate you with all that incessant arguing. Instead, we're going to talk about something that is hopefully less frustrating, voting. We ask people about whether they are registered to vote and whether they voted in the elections. Out of our 72 responders, 95.8% said they were registered to vote. However, a large portion of them did not vote in the 2016 election or the 2018 midterm elections. Why is there a discrepancy? Some might reason that it's simply a hassle to vote. Well, in that case, one could argue that it would also be a hassle to register to vote in the first place, and the discrepancy between the number of those who registered and the number of those actual voters would be lower. Another explanation is what we call the bystander effect. The bystander effect is defined as the inhibiting influence of the presence of others on a person's willingness to help someone in need. There are two factors that influence the bystander effect, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Social influence and diffusion of responsibility. If a bystander is physically in a position to notice a victim, factors such as the bystander's emotional state, the nature of the emergency, and the presence of others can influence his or her ability to realize that something is wrong and that assistance is required. This is referred to as social influence. When a person notices a situation and defines it as requiring assistance, he or she must then decide if the responsibility to help falls on his or her shoulders. Diffusion of responsibility refers to the fact that as the number of bystanders increases, the personal responsibility that an individual bystander feels decreases. As a consequence, so does his or her tendency to help. The relationship between voting and the bystander effect might not be clear to most people at first. We asked in our survey if the same 72 people who responded about their voting behaviors had heard of the bystander effect, and 95.8% of them said they had. When they asked whether they thought their vote can make a difference, 33.3% of them said their vote doesn't matter. Even Gavin somewhat agrees. The belief that a single vote doesn't matter is a perfect example of the diffusion of responsibility aspect of the bystander effect. Because there are billions of voters, 
Even those who have already registered might not feel that it's worth it to vote. They feel that their responsibility to engage in the voting process is diminished because of the sheer number of other voters. It is true that a single vote among billions might not seem likely to define entire electoral results, but our survey estimates that 33.3% of voters feel this way. 33.3% of the total number of votes is sure to have a much larger impact on campaign results. And this is just the results from our own survey. Statistics show that close to half of all U.S. voting age people do not vote. Now, you might ask about the person in need aspect of the bystander effect. When it comes to voting, who is in need? The politicians? The lobbyists? The poll workers? Actually, the people in need are basically everyone who lives under the laws and policies of the city, state, or nation in which the elections are being held. Think about it. The people who are elected to office work together to determine policies regarding things as important as healthcare and education and distribution of your hard-earned tax dollars. Yes, your appointment with the dentist the other week after your painful incident with the ping-pong paddle was affected by the health policy determined by your elected officials. Your education or your child's education are determined by policies. Heck, even the amount you pay for that fourth gallon of ice cream is affected. So, let's get back to our story at the beginning. You argue with yourself about whose life matters the most and wonder who among these people deserve to be saved. It is a difficult decision, but it's easy to dismiss as just a highly unlikely hypothetical scenario. In reality, these types of situations happen every day. I want. I think most of us have been saying or at least heard that phrase since we were younger, especially if we grew up here in the United States. So why do we hear that phrase so much? Can we really do whatever we want? This episode we will be discussing free will and looking over how we make decisions every day. We can't discuss free will without talking about actions. How much control do we really have over our actions? To understand our actions, we must dig deeper into our thoughts, because our thoughts are what control our actions, or at least we think so. Let's simplify our thoughts into fast thinking and slow thinking. We'll call fast thinking system one and slow thinking system two. Fast thinking captures our involuntary reactions, such as facial recognition, which humans developed over time for survival. This is what some people call knee-jerk reactions. It takes very little effort, and it's our go-to response. Fast thinking is also involved in the fluency of our language and syntax. Imagine if we had to put forth constant effort to come up with words and form sentences. I don't think we'll get very far as a civilization if we did. On the other side, we have slow thinking. These are more effortful processes. Examples of slow thinking would be what people do in school, such as memorizing with purpose or mathematical computation. 
Slow thinking is also associated with body changes such as pupil dilations and increased heart rate. The human body wants to conserve as much energy as possible so that it can run efficiently. So our default mode is fast thinking. This is where people run into trouble. When we use fast thinking, we use schemas or mental shortcuts to analyze and interpret the complex world around us. We make a lot of mistakes this way. In the few times that people do not overlook situations, they tend to overanalyze and find flaws where there are none. This seems to be a problem with people who are more educated. They misinterpret patterns a lot. If we think of System 1 and System 2 as drivers of our minds, System 1 drives most of the time. So I hope you have good insurance. Benjamin Lebet is a prominent psychologist who says, the role of conscious free will would not be an initiate a voluntary act, but rather to control whether the act takes place. Is it possible to exhibit complete self-control over our choices? The simple answer seems to be no. Why not? We know that intelligent decision-making made by our good old friend System 2 takes up a lot of energy. After a while of intelligent decision-making, our brain sort of fries. It gets tired, and when it gets tired, then our decision-making is impaired. We make a lot of regretful decisions when we are tired or stressed. The reality is we are not equipped to maximize the efficiency of our culture and economic systems. So from a socio-biological perspective, we're unable to express unlimited self-control. When we get tired, we tend to go for the less rational choices. We make more choices that give us instant gratification and are more self-indulgent. Another thing that affects the choices we make is the availability of resources. A series of studies suggested that depletion made people more likely to compromise, which is a survival technique. People also choose more inferior goods when sources are low. Then they justify their purchases by comparing them to even more inferior goods and then glorifying them. People make countless decisions all the time. Most of these decisions are made within a split second. That's not all bad though. If we took the time to logically think through every single decision we'll make, we'll probably wouldn't get to our leave our bedrooms in the morning. So to answer the question we asked ourselves in the beginning, can we really do whatever we want? Well, it's difficult to say that. The scientific, the scientific evidence and literature suggests that we really cannot do whatever we want. There are societal rules, cultural norms, and legally enforced laws in place that create constant pressure and pull our minds in different directions. Even simple biology suggests that we're unable to make rational choices or even the choices that are most favorable to us all the time. It seems like our so-called free will is more limited than a lot of us would like to believe. So, how do we define what is normal? Is it defined by the norm or the average of the sum total of society? When the meaning of normal is constantly changing and evolving alongside the way our world is changing, then isn't the definition of sanity constantly changing too? 
Historically, it is the people that fall outside of this normal range that are labeled as mentally unwell or even, in more extreme cases, insane. This means that sanity is only considered to be the narrow parameters that we can get some kind of consensus on. The sky is blue, the ocean is wet, the earth is round, although that's a debate for another time. And these are pieces of what we perceive to be an irrefutable objective reality. The issue is that there isn't anything objective, not truly. Everything we think we know about the world is still seen through our biased perceptions, and it is still reflected and distorted through both natural and psychological mediums before we process it. The things we think we know about the world because we've been told our whole lives that they are true have been passed on through other people's biased perceptions and distorted worldviews, and yet have come to be agreed upon as the truth because there's nobody alive left to refute it. At the risk of inciting a whole new slew of conspiracy theories, my point is just this. If sanity is thought to be a state of mind in which you see and understand your world according to the rules that society has agreed upon to be true, then if that true worldview suddenly changes, do we all become insane? Even more than that, context is key. Imagine that a random person came up to you on the street repeating that it was the year 5779. With little to no other context, some of you might characterize this person as totally insane. And yet, according to the Hebrew calendar, the 2018-2019 year is indeed year 5779. Sanity can be vague and messy. If Western culture agrees upon the idea that clouds are condensed forms of atmospheric moisture, are other cultures that see them as deities instead of forces of nature insane for their deeply conflicting beliefs? While most of us would respond, of course not, we would also agree that a man who believes that the government is run by aliens trying to kill him may not be wholly sane. This is it. A taste of the messiness of our minds and how easily the line blurs between sane and insane. And as terrifying as it may be, it is worth considering that in a different society or a different context, any one of us might be considered insane. Take, for example, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, a physician working in Vienna in the 1840s. He was the one who figured out that going directly from the cadaver lab to pulling babies out in the birthing suite may not have been the best idea. And to cut a long story short, he was one of the first people to realize that doctor sanitizing hands could save countless lives. This sounds like such common sense to us that we wouldn't even question it, but Simmelweis was ridiculed by his fellow physicians and labeled as a failure and embarrassment to the practice of medicine. He was eventually committed to a mental asylum and died there, forgotten, only to have his findings be confirmed decades later by scientists such as Pasteur. Think about that for a second. A man that today we look to as a visionary for his revolutionary take on hygiene and medicine was once considered insane and mentally unstable because he was speaking in direct opposition to the then objective perception of the world and how it worked. It is worth considering that sanity may be in the eye of the beholder. Sanity is a fragile line, a line that all of us can cross when we are pushed to our limits or placed in an unfamiliar situation. So that begs the question, how or why are any of us different than the so-called insane? Do we even know for sure that we are? According to the then American Psychological Association president, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, we don't. Zimbardo suggested that just about any ordinary person can slip into madness. In fact, all it may take to trigger the process is a special kind of blow to one's self-image to push someone over the edge of sanity. If you haven't heard of them before, here's the recipe. You take a group of healthy and normal college students, and you mess with them. In this specific experiment, Zimbardo took normal and healthy college students and caused them to have physical arousal in the form of increased heart rate and respirations that created feelings such as anxiety, anger, nervousness, or restlessness. Zimbardo then had his researchers lead the students to incorrectly attribute the cause of these arousals to external cognitive, social, 
physical, or environmental problems that were suggested to the study's participants by researchers. Zimbardo found that when study participants faced a discontinuity that they couldn't find an adequate explanation for, they began to display predictable symptoms of psychopathology, such as phobic behaviors or paranoid symptoms due to attributing their arousal to the incorrect sources. Zimbardo's point was this. When people perceive a violation in some domain of functioning vital to their sense of self-esteem, they will search for ways to explain or rationalize the experience. But, according to Zimbardo's theory, many people who exhibit symptoms of madness are reasoning with insufficient data or rigidly defending the wrong theory. Basically, they resort to symptoms of madness because they can't find a good enough explanation for the experience that violated their perception of themselves in the world. This throws a cog in our previously conceived ideas about sanity. It's easy to believe that other people could descend into insanity. But you? Me? That can never happen. Right? When discussing sanity, the connotation of the word is important to consider. The prefix in suggests a lack or absence of something, in this case, of sanity. The word insane is primarily a word with legal meaning in it that classifies an individual's mental state and ability to distinguish reality from fiction in the context of an alleged crime. Today, insanity is a factor to be used when determining if someone is innocent or guilty, or whose testimony is believable in a court of law, much more than it is used in the context of mental health. Insanity is not a diagnosis that mental health professionals make, and it's not a disease or condition that is detailed in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, aka the holy grail for making psychological diagnoses. If the legal mumbo-jumbo is starting to make your head hurt, join the club. This is perhaps why the word insane has become so deeply interwoven in our everyday language that we sometimes forget the context behind it in which those who were deemed insane were treated as animals or locked up in asylums because there was no one willing to care for them. When we use the word insane to describe a cool new skateboard trick or how absurd we think it is that our girlfriend wants to be sent flowers every day, we tend to forget that mental stability is a privilege and not a guarantee. We can be brought to similar states under the influence of substances due to extreme emotional trauma or the social context in which we are placed. Sanity is a moving target and that's what makes it so hard to pin down, define, or understand. It's a construct that is constantly being constructed and reconstructed to fit into the boundaries of an ever-changing world. It's a fragile line that is constantly being walked, that any of us could be walking at some point in our lives. Let's go to a dark place. I know it may be scary, but I want you to walk over there with me. After World War II, the world was in total disarray. In 1961, Adolf Eichmann, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Nazi party, was finally put on trial in Nuremberg for the atrocities of the war. Although Eichmann was found guilty of various crimes, and the series of trials set the standard for a new moral code in law and human ethics, an essay by Thomas Merton reflected on the terrifying concept that Eichmann was evaluated by a psychiatrist and found to be perfectly sane. As Merton contemplates, it is much worse to consider this calm, well-balanced, unperturbed official conscientiously going about his desk work, his administrative job, in the great organization which happened to be the supervision of mass murder. We equate sanity with a sense of justice, with humaneness, with prudence, with the capacity to love and understand other people. 
We are relying on the sane people of the world to preserve it from barbarism, madness, destruction. And now it begins to dawn on us that it is precisely the sane ones who are the most dangerous. Merton forces us to question how we can fathom a world in which sanity can include the systematic destruction of children, families, entire groups of people, and the callous disregard for human life that was displayed by the Nazi party. In that case, what is the value of even delineating a world into sane and insane? The point of all of this was just to get you to think. If we can break out of our rigidly defined boxes of a sane us versus an insane them, maybe we can be a little bit more compassionate and a little bit more understanding that sanity is not guaranteed for any of us. And even if it is, what does this sanity really mean if we act out of cruelty and out of spite?